0: Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have Neurocoffee Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, digging into a very busy Tuesday. Uh, we're gonna go straight into today's Q&A. This is with Alex. Alex brings up a really good question. Um, I, I fear that it's gonna be one of those things that there's gonna be like six people out there that are really, really interested in this and everybody's gonna go, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, but anyway, I thought it was a great question and uh, it was in regards to the influence of of how the vestibular system is affected based on positions, orientations, and such, shape changes, if you will. Um, One of the things that that Alex was was observing is he's able to see some of these distorted representations in the cranium and mandible upper cervical spine, and it's like, well, what does that do to the vestibular system? And so you have the, the vestibular apparatus Um, as part of the the temporal bones. And so if we do have any shape change that involves upper cervical spine, mandible, cranium, you're gonna get a a change in the orientation of the vestibular apparatus. And so does that affect us? Absolutely it does. Um, The question mark is how much? So if we have adaptations that that influence the system to a a long-term degree, then maybe the influence increases to a certain degree, but this is also positional. And I think I mentioned this in the video, Um, If you look at a comparison between upright postures versus, say, a supine posture, you have a reduction in the vestibular influence in the supine position and an increase in the dependence on vision for orientation. So context really matters here. But we also, as I said, have to consider the fact that we've got shape changes in positions that are also going to be an influence. So, Alex, thank you for this question. Truly appreciate it. It's going to help a lot of people. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I'll see you tomorrow morning greetings
1: so i've been so, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. that's, <laughs> that's me waking up as i say that um so i i've been trying to dive into some cranial stuff lately and figure out that positioning and then um i had a patient come in the other day whose ears were like very different in position Narrow Left down forward to narrow yeah left uh-huh. down forward um yep. he was young he had no particular issues but it got me wondering uh what happens to the particular apparatus and the particular system with different positioning like that and how okay. much that would affect Sorry. balance and, and like you were cutting the in and out
0: just a little bit you were cutting in and out a little bit
1: Okay. So do I need to I, got,
0: I got like every other word. So, um, no, I just need to repeat the, the part after the ear thing.
1: Uh, how does the position of the temporal bones affect with the, some...
0: okay. So <clears throat> do you you know how the vestibular system is organized as far as its orientation? Okay. do yeah. you, Do you understand like the semicircular canals? Okay. So they kind of look like this and they're on the horizontal like that. So you got the one that goes this way, the one that goes this way, and then the one that goes this way, All right? Okay. So if we go like that, that gives us a, a decent representation of it, right? And so <clears throat> if I have if I have a, a alteration of the orientation of the temporal bones because they're anchored the they're anchored semicircular canals are in the temporal bones, right? So I get a twist in the temporal bones. Guess what I get? I get a reorientation of the vestibular system. Okay. So instead of having this nice little even thing that, that, you know, moves relative to one another, almost evenly, I have an orientation that does this. So under normal circumstances, it would actually move under this circumstance, like it would in this manner. Right. But now you got something that's going to be like this. So, um, you will have a, a, a different reference point for midline. Think about that. So so the semicircular canals, if you look down upon them, they kind of look like this. And so they would form almost like a square relationship to one another. And if I twist it and I turn it, it turns the midline, your perceived midline. Okay? So whichever way you're going, that's the direction that it would go. But if you have a, a cranial bias, under most circumstances, you're going to end up very much like a pelvis. It's going it's to go forward and left, move to the right. If you're narrow, it's going to tip up on the oblique and move forward, um, just like um, you would see in, in the two archetypes. But like I said, it's going to give you a perception of where your middle is, which is one of the reasons why you see these people make these adjustments in their center of gravity, right? Um, You get a reorientation of your vision, right? So you talked about, you asked a question about about eyes last time, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So think about changing the socket orientation and then changing your your, um, globe relative to the socket to keep your eyes fixed right and useful in binocular vision. Um, so if if I have a a sense, a position sense of of where my midline is, I can also get this this shift of where the midline of your vision is. So the intersection of where your binocular vision is is actually kind of crooked too. Okay, okay. So where your IR intersects, right? Um, in regards to your vision, yeah, same kind of thing. So so there's definitely stuff going on there.
1: So that will affect not just position sense, but also where you're most comfortable putting force into the ground.
0: And there you go. Absolutely. Um little, little fun fact, and this was in Journal of Vision 2016, I think. Don't quote me on the, on the date. I'm not really sure. But they were looking at they were looking at what sensory input was most important, um, depending on body position. So they were they looked at supine and sitting and standing and so on. And the more upright you became, the more vestibular became an influence, and it and it took away some of the demand on vision. Whereas when you're in other positions where you're not upright, vision tends to be more predominant. So a little fun fact. Yeah. So, so one of the, another reason for taking people off of their feet and, and reorienting gravity, if you will, is for that purpose is because we do have to consider when they are upright, that vestibular is a a, a bigger factor. And if we can um, reorient people um, and Influence shape change prior to bringing them to their feet, then you're more likely to be successful in in a lot of cases, Uh, more severe cases, probably. But good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Hang on, Ian. Hi, sir. I
2: I wanted to ask you. I was thinking about the narrows and their ability to concentrically orient their pelvic outlet, and because part uh, like the anterior pelvic outlet, Uh and because my my end game narrows like when they in in terms of squatting them and just because their strategy is top down um i'm now like thinking and trying a few different stuff in between the box squat like with the full unload and tap and go and i'm thinking because they because they have a tendency to compress from top down as they're lowering to the box they're they're already kind of compressing top down to stay upright to 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 lower down slowly and with some people i see it it visually looks better if if i full unload them and then and then use use that that response to to help them actually to To let go of their strategy which is to compress top down and just relax the pelvic floor and then exhale and like create a pressure from bottom up versus just keeping them in their in their compensatory strategy when they're compressing top down and not not letting them to fully unload on the box that i i feel like they're still uh, they they cannot shift the the pressures if I don't let them to to fully unload on the box. You know what I'm saying?
0: It, yeah, it, but but keep it keep in mind that you're you're you've got a tissue you've got a connective tissue behavior going on here.
2: All right, I got a I get a yield. When you, and, when you,
0: yeah. so so the the box is going to stop the outlet all right. wherever the box is, right? Yeah. All right. And then um, if you deload onto the box, you've got a yield, you've got an energy storage element there, depending on how long you leave on the box, that they're, they're getting a recoil under that circumstance as well. You superimpose the forceful exhale as they leave the box. Now you've ramped up to concentric orientation and you get even more of the energy release available to you because they, they're, they're sort of stiffening the connect, Or yeah, they're stiffening the connector tissues as they're coming off the box
2: all right all right and if i if i just do the tap and go i i keep the i keep the pelvic outlet concentric
0: there's less differential in the storage and release of energy in the connective tissues
2: all right all right and all right yeah that makes sense because if if I don't unload them, and especially the pylon people would, would anteriorly orient right at the point where they should step should, uh, and go, that um,
1: means?
0: That might, be a, that might be a useful strategy because then you're seeing where they have to apply the greatest amount of force, and then that might be where you want to train them to not have to use the orientation so they can manage the pressures. All right. That would All be associated right. with the force. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. 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 Because I was I was just seeing better results with especially this end game people of fully unloading them. But I know my end goal is to, to tap tap and go them, but they, they have to control it first and be able to well,
0: that's what the box is for. So the, the, yeah. the box helps you control the joint position. That's the muscle orientation. Okay. The behavior on the box is going to influence the connective tissue behavior. So that's it's important that you differentiate between the two.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And especially the the end game people are like they, they have a hard time of reorienting the 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 muscle activity. So that's why I would I would help them with the tap and go just not to not to keep the pressures, pushing them down right. but to unload and recall.
1: All right.
0: If you're, if you're having trouble with muscle orientation and joint position, it's best to start them on the box and have them stand up first.
2: All right. Understood.
0: Okay. Because yeah. if you make them start at the top and they're all tensed up and they got to get to the box and they want to they please you, so they want to get to the target right you might be too tense and then they're then they're stuck using an orientation to get to the box whereas you can set them up on the box okay teach them the joint position stand up first then you can go top to bottom back to the top but i would start them i would start them at the bottom and go up
2: all right understood and after after that i was playing with some let's say i'm seated on the box as they as they can go uh up and down and back up. If I want to um, add like the the time the duration component of it, could I could I make them lift their legs up and as they contact the ground, like uh, feet feet up and as they contact the ground, I'm getting that uh, distal to proximal IR. So I'm basically pressurizing from bottom up and just use the feet contact to make the duration as fast as possible?
0: Well, if, if they're deloading, if they're deloading to the box, you're already getting that. The, the concern that I would have, if you're picking their feet up is what are they going to do when you do that? It's like, you got to, you still got to, yeah, still have to, well, are they, or, or they're going to collapse. It's like, you, you take somebody's, somebody's base of support away. The only base of support you have are issue tuberosities on the box. It's like, okay, that's a balancing act. Right. right. So I, I, I don't think you need to physically lift their feet off the floor, because as soon as the center of gravity goes behind the feet, number one, you've just deloaded the foot. If they deload to the box, you took more pressure off the feet. Now they have to create the impulse to come off the box. Anyway, you're going to get you're going to get the same effect. And it's probably a little bit. All right. It's a little bit easier to execute. And probably when we speak relatively, uh, it's probably safer. All
2: right. All right. Understood. Understood. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
0: Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A very busy Monday coming up. So we're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. This question is with Matt and Matt brings up a great question. in regards to how we produce energy fatigue and its influence on uh, relative motion. And so there's a sweet spot Where relative motion truly exists and we tend to associate it with 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 tidal breathing because what we're able to do is we're actually able to meet energetic needs very easily under these circumstances so we don't see a massive recruitment of musculature that would that would interfere now let's superimpose the concept of fatigue onto things so we produce a higher level of fatigue which means we're going to become more reliant on on anaerobic energy sources which is going to increase the recruitment of certain musculature that would be in the axial skeleton and superficially now we start to get interference with relative motions because we have to recruit larger motor units we have to recruit more forceful motor units which requires that we actually reduce our relative motions so there's a very very strong relationship here Um, the thing you that you want to take away with is that everything just tends to be the same and so If we can produce energy efficiently and effectively, if we can offset fatigue, we tend to be able to maintain relative motion for a longer period. So this is a great question um, and uh, gives you a reason to understand how we produce energy and what those influences are, depending on how we're doing so. And so again, short-term energy systems are going to be more reliant on those high force motor units. And if we can produce energy more efficiently, so the bias towards oxidative energy production, we're probably going to be able to maintain relative motion for a long period of time. Thank you, Matt. Great question to lead off the week. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I'll see you tomorrow. Hi, Matt.
3: G'day. How you going, Bill?
0: I am awesome.
3: Awesome. Very good. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not a Shannon Doherty, girl, uh, Shannon Doherty fan either, mate. I was more uh, Kelly for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't, um, like, I didn't like that show, Matt. Matt, I didn't like that show because I couldn't grow sideburns.
3: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, the, the big hair kind of got me too. It was there. <laughs> <Straight> up. <really. laughs> anyway, I... um. I'm going to change tact a little bit. Uh, It's something it's sort of been thinking about in theory for a little while. And I don't really know uh, uh, how much you've looked into this, whether you have or you haven't. So I was looking at things like when you look at cardiorespiratory output, say uh, VO2 max testing, things of that Uh nature. Yeah. And how the restoration of relative motion might have Uh, a direct effect in improving that other than, you know, other than improving obvious like movement efficiency. But but I mean, from a perspective where, you know, you would restore relative motion on someone who might be quite um, uh, using quite a lot of compensatory strategies you, you know potential to expand obviously their their, their ability to uh, um to intake oxygen to start off with the reduction in muscular tones so um there was a couple of things that i wanted to sort of maybe talk about there if you reduce muscular resting tone so let's say we we get a um we get a joint in a better position. Therefore, we don't have as much uh, motor unit recruitment when it's at rest. It's not that the towel is not as twisted. Right. Does that give us a bigger window until occlusion would occur if we were to put someone in a, in a, in a test where we were going to drive them to muscular occlusion? Do, do, do you get what I mean by that? No, do I know exactly different? what you're
0: saying. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I, and, and I think your, your, uh, uh, your thought process and reasoning is, is on point. Um, we, we talk about relative motion being in that, in that space of, of easy breathing, the, the like tidal volume breathing. Um, one of the reasons why that is as such is because, well, okay, there's less muscle tension there. Circulation wouldn't be affected. I wouldn't have to be biased towards an anaerobic um, energy system. I wouldn't have the production of strong ions that are associated with short-term energy systems. I wouldn't get the feedback under that circumstance, which actually increases muscle activity via the feedback to the autonomic nervous system. You see, this is, there's there's this huge cycle here. And so, um, absolutely. So, so, if I can provide... The, the, the greater the degree... Of energy that I can produce from an oxidative standpoint, the more likely I am to be able to maintain a greater degree of relative movement under the, under whatever circumstance that I am in. So it becomes huge, actually, um, especially with. Um, um, Think about this: uh, take your 400 meter hurdler. Um, have you ever run a 400 like flat out? Like try to, you know. Yeah, it's, ter- it's terrible. It's 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 arguably um, short of the vertigo thing. I think it might be the most the most unpleasant experience. Oh, no! Let me take that back. I've been divorced, so that would be the most unpleasant experience that I've had. Um, actually, it wasn't the divorce that was unpleasant; it was the marriage. Uh, but uh, the four hundred meter uh, run is 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 vicious. And then, but what I want you to think about, Matt, I want you to think about the last uh, one hundred and fifty meters. Like the first 300, you're going, and this is awesome. And you're flying. And then the brick wall, the imaginary brick wall hits you in the face. And then it just becomes a a torturous uh, endeavor. But the thing that you notice, and people say this, it's like you start to tighten up, right? Mm -hmm. Like your gate. You like your your step length is less, your your ability to produce vertical force is less, and your arm swing is reduced. and you just watch these people struggle. even at the high levels, it's like you can see the difference. Um, they're obviously so much better than the rest of the world, but but no, it's like like all of that muscle tension is is all part of this 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 relationship of of behaviors. Um, And again, if you could produce that, if you could produce the energy oxidatively at a high enough rate under the circumstance, most likely you'd never experience that.
3: So if you, you if I,
0: if I I may, uh, there's people that are walking around in that state. Okay. They are coming to everybody on this call that has dealt with somebody that has limited motion most likely has somebody that is biased towards anaerobicists most of the time. Right? Your couch said. potato, your couch potato lives in anaerobiosis, Right. And they don't move. Yeah, I can think of some I can think of
3: some pylon shaped people that attend my facility that are, you know, struggling with gravity at the best of times. And then yeah. they go on a short run for a couple of hundred meters. And it's uh oh yeah they're, they're they're certainly at a disadvantage compared to some of the other folk as far as energy output's concerned and return on investment is poor, you know. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Like uh you ever work with a mixed martial artist?
3: Uh yeah, but not in a strength and conditioning sense. Like I've I've been on the mat with quite a few of them. for. Yeah. Okay. Well,
0: okay. So, you know what it feels like. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and so, um, you know, think about the, like a three minute round um, when you're really intense is an eternity.
3: The balancing act with all of these athletes that we're talking about here is that they obviously need the orientations in order to, the force they need to be good at their events so there's going to be that constant trade-off with they're they're never going to be able to reduce it completely but we can buy them all you know a little bit more space or a bit more of a window you could potentially improve it do you know of anyone that's actually done any sort of testing where they've got someone who is uh you know potentially an end game representation put them into a a a, a, a vo2 max test or something similar and then Done an adjustment and then retested them.
0: What uh when you say adjustment, what do you what do you? Well, enjoying?
3: okay, so an intervention probably is a better way of putting it. So say so for instance, you've you've got someone, you've got someone that you've seen that's that has got a uh-huh. you know, mass, yeah, gonna... massive reduction in hip IR or something, you've you put them you put them through the 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 it's test.
0: Basically. You wow. then you then yeah, uh awesome. do the intervention can you please um i don't know that anybody would have that perspective directly matt yeah
3: i'm just um, curious
0: yeah I, now we've messed around with that kind of stuff okay um okay. So here's what i used to do back in the olden days before you were born um actually this is we like a very IFAST 1.0 kind of an experiment so you remember back in the olden days when i did like 77 tests in my assessment did, you've heard me tell that story Yes. Yeah. So what we used to do, because we had a lot of time on our hands when we first opened, you know, because you got like, you know, eight people coming in. And so you got a lot of time. Uh, We used to uh, uh, do the assessment. And then I would run them through a dynamic warm up. So they got tired. And then I would remeasure. Okay. And you you would definitely see the deficits start to show up, right? And it would be different depending, like you know, certain types of athletes. Like our soccer players were were much better conditioned than than you know most folks that would come in, and so they wouldn't change much. They would have limitations that were associated with their you know their their typical training and their typical sport. But the people that that were not regular uh, athletes nor well conditioned. The deficits would show up, and so you could you could see that, because yeah. uh, I did a talk. It's it's probably still available on DVD, actually, um, in two thousand and eight, and and I brought up this this concept of fatigue because it, there this stuff is in the research. The way it shows up in the research um, is uh, they talk about uh, instability, right? So, um, and, and again, you can, you can look it up. It's, it's, all you gotta do is look at, um, like ankle instability, um, uh, core instability. Um, they'll talk about that a little bit too, man. That was, whew. what what, you, what is that bill? Oh, the the cool, uh, what was that? I, honestly, Matt, I've never seen it well-defined. So I don't use that term, um, uh, hip you'll see hip. Um, and, and I, and they'll talk about spine directly, um, a lot of times. But, but what they'll do is they'll, they do make comparisons. Like they'll, they'll do like, um, you know, single leg landings or, or something like that. And they'll do it in a, in a rested and fatigued state. And they'll, they'll show the differences. And, and the reason that the differences show up is because you've, you've altered uh, the, the Capacity for strategies, right? You've limited the strategies that were available, and so uh, the the equivalent perturbation throws you off your your center, right? Much to a much greater degree. So it takes longer for you to come back to a controlled position, or you can't recapture it. So it's all there, like I said. But I don't think that anybody would look at it from the exact same perspective that we talk about. Um, but but still like it's a, it's apparent. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a mystery, but it, again, it would, it wouldn't be perceived the same way. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neurocoffee coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. As usual, a very busy Friday coming up, we're going to dig straight into today's Q and A. Um, this is with Jen. Um, Jim works with a lot of baseball players, and so we we're talking about narrow ISAs and force production because we have to be really, really careful how we teach our narrow ISAs to produce force. Um, they have a very small window of opportunity to apply force into the ground. And if we extend that duration, then all we end up doing is sticking them to the ground. So we started talking about static positions using an overcoming strategy. And so under these situations, position is going to matter as to how we're applying force into the ground. And then again, the duration of the effort is going to uh, be determined by their their capabilities. And so if we extend the duration of a high force application, again, we're actually gonna slow them down. We want our narrow assays to produce as much force as humanly possible, but in time constrained activities, we have to be very, very careful. As long as they're applying high force within the constrained time, they're going to do great. Um, But any time that you you increase the duration of force, it interferes with the velocity. So force and velocity can be really, really good friends, but we don't want them to hang out together too much because, again, of the interference. So this is a great question uh, for a lot of people that work with. tall slender folk, um, that are trying to teach them how to produce force. Um, so again, it's not about chasing weight room weight room numbers. It's about how they produce force into the ground and for how long. So thank you, Jen, uh, go to the YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe so you get all the videos. Um, the podcast will be up on Sunday as usual. Everybody have an outstanding weekend. I'll see you next week.
4: Okay. Um, so take two. Yeah. So, um, you know i i i guess i'm having a hard time wrapping my head around improving force production in a narrow and how to get creative with that and and make it useful um and and i i think you already answered my question but i'll ask it anyway um yeah. overcoming isometrics and my, my initial <laughs> as in like pushing into an uh, an object that's immovable uh huh okay
0: Yeah, I need you
4: know. Yeah. Um, Well,
0: okay. So hang on a second. So let's just let's just nip this in the bud. Um, (laughs) An isometric means same length, right? And it's never the same length. The position doesn't change much, right? But the length changes as you execute the activity. So it's a misnomer. It's and it's a misrepresentation. That's why I don't like it. Totally agree. Okay. Cool. We're on the same page. (laughs) Awesome.
4: Um, so my thought was, you know, what if you put a narrow in a more favorable position for their for their archetype, such as like, you know, a, a upper portion of a squat or a split squat, right? You're not as much in their quote unquote sticking zone um, and you perform the ISO there. It, I mean, at the end of the day, they're still squeezing, but if they're in a more favorable position for their frame, is that helpful at all?
0: Yes, okay. But but Come on. The duration. The duration. Oh. No. Tropical storm Nick Nicole. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry. Say did it I again. Cut out
4: again? Oh, I said the Yeah, duration. you did. It was it's okay. like right at
0: the opportune moment, too. It was very it was very dramatic. There was a buildup and then Stuck it. Go ahead. Um
4: so the duration is that is that one of the key pieces?
0: Yeah, Uh, it is. It is. It is the right. You can get everything right, and then and then you do it too long, and you stick them to the ground. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So okay. So let's look at this from from a couple of perspectives. So don't just think about the duration of the of the the overcoming element. Okay. You think about the rise. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then. how how quickly can they turn it off? Right. Okay. okay. So
4: yeah. When you look at
0: when you look at movement efficiency, the ability to go from peak force to low to low no force, there's your velocity, right? Right. Right. And I always I, I always go back to uh uh. Stu McGill has has stuff on this where he was looking at martial artists and kicking. And um, he had him. All wired up and 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 the mg was was on their on their trunk, I believe. And I think it was George St. Pierre, don't quote me. Um, but I think it was. and and there's two peaks of of force output in something like that. So when they initiate the kick, there's a there's a very high force and then it disappears because what this is is the leg going through this through space very quickly, which means there has to be as little force as possible. and then mm-hmm. at contact, there's another peak force. So you have to look at it from that perspective. It's like, okay, I need you to be able to ramp this baby up very, very quickly and then shut it down sure. very quickly and then sustain for whatever it is you determine is the the optimal time frame. Awesome. Yeah,
4: yeah, okay. That's super helpful.
0: Yeah. and, and all you got to, again, it's just the recognition of like, okay, how much time, how much space do I have to to apply this force? And this is why this is this is why I talk about strength training the way I do. It's like I want. Like I want a narrow ISA, I want them to be as forceful as possible, but within the time constraint that doesn't create interference. And that's the problem is is because when you start chasing a weight room number and you say, so-and-so needs a double body weight trap bar deadlift because so-and-so said that that's how you do whatever, whatever with somebody. It's like, okay, now you're just chasing something for the sake of chasing it and you create the interference yourself.
4: Gotcha. So KPIs would, essentially you could still use like the jump mat or a force plate. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, to understand
0: yeah. how long. OK. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, yes, you can. Um, there, there's also visual representations that you can use. Um, if you've ever done like a, um, what would be represented as a dynamic effort box squat, mm. you can do box squats for time, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so it's like, say, how long does it take you to do three reps
4: mm-hmm.
0: of a dynamic effort box squat, and then you you monitor that time, and then you monitor it for drop off. So, um, did we just lose? Oh, there you are. Uh, so, think about this: um, uh, How long does it take to throw a pitch? Split second. Well, like start to finish, kind of a thing. Oh, like couple less- seconds. Less, I was going to say less than two seconds, probably. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, how many pitches d- does my pitcher need to throw? Give me
4: uh, Give me another. Seventy-five.
0: Awesome. Okay. How many reps of dynamic effort box squats? Um, so let's just say let's just say that you're really fast and you can do three reps in two seconds. Mm-hmm. How many times does a, my pitcher need to be able to do that?
4: Seventy-five times. <laughs>
0: Pretty good. (laughs) So, so that's that's endurance training, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now they're not doing seventy-five reps in a row, right? But they have to accumulate enough sets to create the ability to reproduce the energy output and the force output.
4: Hmm.
0: Now, here you go. Test question. Uh I got a closer. Okay, Mm -hmm. you need to throw. He needs to throw six pitches a night. Mm-hmm. Okay. How does he have to do his his squat? Uh,
4: pretty relative, darn quick.
0: Okay. At what relative yeah. effort? Pretty high. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's, so so now we got to we got to really raise the peak force here. Okay. Mm-hmm. How often does he how often does he train his his dynamic effort box squat? um how many appearances does he make in a week Jen?
4: well yeah i mean he's going to close practically every game so quite a number
0: of- so so does he need more frequency than a starter that would pitch every five days gotcha
4: yeah i gotcha
0: yep so he does less volume and he's right. just exposed to it frequently, frequently so, so yeah. this is again this is the difference between training it's like, like they, they they put everybody on the pitchers program right Right. Because they do the same thing, but they don't all do the same thing. Right. If I have to throw pitches at max velo, then I need a different type of exposure. I need a different type of training. Whereas if I need to throw 60 to 100 pitches, Mm -hmm. that's a different story. Right. Good
4: stuff. Yeah.